Due to the nature of today's episode, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of crowd crushes, suffocation, and death. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen. London, August 1989. Lord Justice Peter Taylor paced back and forth in his wood-paneled Victorian office. Except for a few guards, he was the only person left in the Royal Courts of Justice that evening. He seemed to think better when the office was empty, and he needed a clear mind for his current case. It might have been the toughest investigation of Taylor's career. His decision would likely change the course of the kingdom for years to come. It might even become his legacy. As he paced anxiously, he suddenly felt a hand on his shoulder. He whipped around and saw two young men standing behind him. Lord Justice Taylor demanded to know how they got into his office, but they didn't answer. Instead, their mouths gaped open eerily as if gasping for air. Before Taylor could yell for a guard, the office door crashed open. A crowd of people in crimson sports jerseys swarmed into his office, surrounding him, tearing at his clothes. Lord Justice Taylor fought to break free, but he couldn't move. He opened his mouth to scream, only there was no sound. Just as he was about to be crushed by the writhing mass, he woke with a gasp. He found himself slumped at his desk, his forehead dripping with sweat. The people were gone. It was only him. On the table before him was a stack of papers. His 90-page report on the Hillsborough Stadium disaster. He likely hoped this document would finally bring closure to the case. And maybe then the nightmares would stop. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on the Hillsborough disaster. On April 15th, 1989, almost 100 spectators were killed and close to 700 were injured at a football match in Sheffield, England. Last time, we followed the events leading up to the tragedy. Then, we looked at the immediate aftermath from the blame placed on hooligans to Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher's demand for an investigation. In this episode, we'll examine the government inquiry through Lord Justice Peter Taylor's monumental report. It made some groundbreaking conclusions about the causes of the disaster, but in the end, it couldn't stop the conspiracy theories. Today, we'll shine a light on three of them. From the idea that the secret society of Freemasons was involved, 
to the possibility that police missteps or even faulty stadium design led to the deadly catastrophe. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what will cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It was Sunday, April 15th, 1989 at Hillsborough Stadium in Sheffield, England. The semi-final football match between Liverpool and Nottingham Forest had left 96 spectators dead. Hundreds more were injured. The blood still hadn't dried on the grass, but the police and media appeared desperate to blame someone. To many, the obvious scapegoat seemed to be hooliganism. As we learned in part one, drunk and disorderly spectators had been a common issue at English football matches since the 1960s. But large-scale tragedies like Hillsborough were few and far between. Every year, hundreds of football matches took place with rowdy fans, yet without major incidents. So what was different at Hillsborough? That's exactly what the survivors, the victims' families, and most of the country wanted to know. Only a day after the tragedy, UK Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher traveled to Hillsborough to tour the grounds. But it wasn't just a goodwill trip to comfort the survivors. She demanded answers. According to Bleacher Report, Thatcher was not a fan of hooligans. 
after Liverpool devotees caused the deaths of 39 spectators at an international match in 1985, she took a strong anti-hooligan stance. She even backed harsh measures to crack down on troublemakers. Not only did Thatcher want to ban English teams from international competitions, she advocated for an ID card system that would keep track of each fan and cut down on the mayhem. We should be clear here. We don't know for sure if Thatcher blamed troublemakers for the disaster. But according to the BBC, she was told by police that drunk fans were the cause. And she didn't waste any time commissioning an investigation to find out. On April 17th, just two days after the disaster, Thatcher appointed Lord Justice Peter Taylor to get to the bottom of it. He was educated at Cambridge University. According to his colleagues, he was a no-nonsense guy and a frequent critic of the British legal system. He even advocated for getting rid of the traditional black robes and wigs they typically used. With that in mind, it's unclear why Prime Minister Thatcher chose Lord Justice Taylor. Well, perhaps she thought his experience on the bench meant he'd come down hard on hooligans. Or maybe she thought he'd play the political angle, side with her to advance his career. Little did she know, Taylor wasn't biased by politics or personal advancement. His investigation was as objective as it was broad-ranging. Over the next few months, he interviewed close to 100 experts and witnesses. He analyzed police procedures, Hillsborough's construction, and sales of alcohol around the stadium. Taylor even traveled the world researching other stadiums for their safety and design. He left no stone unturned. Then, in August 1989, four months after the tragedy at Hillsborough, Lord Justice Taylor released the first of two reports. He called this one the Interim Report. In it, he outlined his major findings, some of which shocked the country and likely Prime Minister Thatcher. Early in the report, Taylor quoted Dr. John Habgood, Archbishop of York, who spoke at a memorial for Hillsborough victims. Dr. Habgood said, quote, events of the magnitude of Hillsborough don't usually happen just for one single reason. Disasters happen because a whole series of mistakes, misjudgments, and mischances happen to come together in a deadly combination. According to Taylor's report, those mistakes, misjudgments, and mischances were mostly due to stadium layout and the, quote, response of the police. He went on to highlight the key failures of Police Chief Superintendent David Duckenfield, who was in command that day, and who gave the fateful order to open the infamous Gate C. As we heard in part one, Gate C was a large steel door that was generally only opened at the end of a match. It was an exit gate, not an entrance gate. And when it was flung open, Thousands of people streamed into the stadium that day, crushing those in the already overcrowded spectator pens. Besides the police missteps, Taylor also stated unequivocally that hooligans were not to blame. In fact, he added, some police officers made excuses for their loss of control when they, quote, overestimated the drunken element in the crowd. 
Those words likely stung a lot of people in England, especially the police and Prime Minister Thatcher. On the other hand, the conclusions probably gave hope to survivors and families who wanted justice. In the wake of the Taylor Report, they likely expected criminal charges to be filed against stadium management and police, namely Chief Superintendent Duckenfield. It seemed like a cut-and-dry case. But on August 30th, 1990, over a year after the Taylor Report, England's Crown Prosecution Service, the equivalent of the U.S. Department of Justice, concluded there wasn't enough evidence to pursue criminal action. It was a devastating blow to Hillsborough survivors and victims' families. But it also seemed highly suspicious. At least until 30 years later, when new court testimony suggested there was a reason Duckenfield was never held accountable. And it involved a secret cabal of high-powered individuals. Up next, a cover-up orchestrated by one of the world's oldest fraternities. Hey, it's Carter from Cold Cases, here to tell you about a very special crossover I'm doing with Sarah Turney and the fantastic series Disappearances. In 1959, nine hikers mysteriously died in Russia's Ural Mountains. Over 60 years later, we're still left wondering what exactly happened on Dyatlov Pass. Sarah and I are teaming up to take a closer look. If you're a ParCast listener or a true crime fan, this episode is for you. Follow Cold Cases and check out our deep dive into the Dyatlov Pass incident today. Listen for free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In August 1989, Lord Justice Peter Taylor's report on the Hillsborough disaster made some shocking conclusions. Not only did it blame the tragedy on stadium layout and crowd management, but also ineffective police response. At the time, nothing came of it. As we've mentioned earlier, Police Chief Superintendent Duckenfield was never held accountable. He was ultimately found not guilty of gross negligence manslaughter. According to later statements, there were rumors around the force that Duckenfield and a clandestine group of individuals wanted to blame Superintendent Roger Marshall. You may recall from part one, Marshall oversaw the Liverpool turnstiles where the crowd buildup first began. He repeatedly requested help to alleviate the pressure at the entrance. Duckenfield didn't respond to Marshall's initial requests until he finally gave the go-ahead to open the infamous Gate C. Yet somehow it was rumored that someone wanted to try and shift the blame off of Duckenfield and on to Marshall. A strategic decision, some claim, was made by a high-level group of individuals to protect their own. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one that the Freemasons were involved in a Hillsborough cover-up, and they may have deflected blame from Police Chief Superintendent Duckenfield to others on the force. Even just the mention of the mysterious organization is a red flag to conspiracy theorists. 
For the uninitiated, the Freemasons are a legitimate social organization with a roster of famous members. George Washington, Theodore Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, among many others. Allegedly, you can even see Freemason symbols on the back of U.S. dollar bills. That mysterious-looking eye hovering above the pyramid? That's supposedly tied to the Freemasons. Perhaps because of the arcane symbols and powerful members, Freemasons have been linked to all sorts of conspiracies. From connections to aliens to a clandestine cabal of leaders who run the world. Which is no secret if you're a regular fan of this show. But how did the Freemasons get wrapped up in Hillsborough? Well, the rumors about this Freemason conspiracy actually came to light decades after the Taylor Report. Not until 2014, when the government probed into the disaster again. During the inquest, a police constable named Maxwell Groom went in for questioning. During his statement, he claimed he'd heard of a secret Freemason meeting with one specific goal, protect police chief superintendent David Duckenfield. Why did the Freemasons want to protect Duckenfield and scapegoat Marshall? Well, the answer was simple. Duckenfield was a Freemason. Duckenfield later admitted in an inquest that he joined the group in 1975. He even held the rank of Worshipful Master, the leader of the local chapter. So there's little question about his status amongst their ranks. But there is a question on whether he used that status to protect himself from the law. It may not sound like a big deal to us now, but in England during the 1990s, there was a common belief that Freemasons controlled the legal system. There was even a nationwide push for judges and prosecutors to declare their ties to the organization. But after Groom's testimony, the judge on the case, Lord Justice John Goldring, tried to put this theory to bed. He reminded the jury that there was no concrete evidence that a Freemason meeting ever took place in regards to the Hillsborough disaster. And there was certainly no evidence of a cover-up in Duckenfield's favor. Goldring characterized the allegations as, quote, scuttlebutt. Well, scuttlebutt or not, for me, there is a ring of truth to all of this. It's that age-old story of the boss ducking responsibility while the underling takes the heat. Well, there's a reason why it's such a common trope, because it happens. And Duckenfield even admitted in court to being a Freemason. I get that the Freemasons are supposed to be a secret underground society, but there's so little information in regards to this cover-up that I can't even begin to buy into it. Especially because it all stems from one person's testimony with very little backing. Besides, if the Freemasons wanted to pin the blame on Roger Marshall, they didn't do a very good job. Marshall was never charged with a crime. That's true. But it doesn't mean they didn't try. Well, perhaps Marshall wasn't charged because a lot of things went wrong at Hillsborough. So much so that it couldn't have been just one person's fault. That's a great point, which segues nicely into conspiracy theory number two. That a series of police mistakes were the main cause of the Hillsborough disaster. Well, this is a complicated one, and let's be clear up front. 
South Yorkshire police were never found guilty of negligence or any other crimes related to the Hillsborough events. But for the survivors and families of the victims, this theory likely holds merit. Let's take a look step-by-step step using the Taylor Report as a guide. Throughout his report, Lord Justice Taylor laid out the police missteps in a logical fashion. The first, of course, was preparation, or rather, lack thereof. According to the document, Duckenfield didn't visit Hillsborough Stadium before approving the match's operational plan. Apparently, his only experience at the stadium was a match two weeks before, and that one was sparsely attended. It certainly wasn't a sold-out FA Cup semifinal with 54,000 spectators. In later inquests, Duckenfield even admitted he wasn't prepared to command the football match. He confessed he didn't review the layout or stadium capacity. Oh, that seems crazy. And the mistakes don't stop there. According to the Taylor Report, there were more on the day of the match, like failing to monitor the capacity of the spectator pens. It should be stated that after the Hillsborough tragedy, representatives for the South Yorkshire Police argued it wasn't their responsibility to monitor stands. Duckenfield himself stated he didn't know that police were responsible for monitoring overcrowding at the stadium. Perhaps that's the case, but the Taylor Report said there was an unwritten agreement between the police and Hillsborough management. Namely, that it was typical for the police to monitor the end of the stadium where the tragedy occurred. Well, the report went so far as to cite a 1986 court case where the South Yorkshire police sued Hillsborough Stadium management for not paying them for their crowd management services. But I think we have to zoom out a bit because the issues of monitoring the stands didn't cause the Hillsborough disaster on its own. It was just one tiny piece of the puzzle. Right. According to Lord Justice Taylor, one of the most significant errors came later. He described it in detail under a section of the report titled, The Blunder on Opening the Gates. As we heard earlier, when police opened Gate C, a throng of people forced their way into the stadium, crushing the ones already in the spectator pens. The Taylor Report attributed that to the police. Even though there were rumors that rowdy spectators forced the gate open, that was apparently not the case. In fact, in later court testimony, Duckenfield admitted he'd lied about the gate on the day of the tragedy. In the heat of the moment, he blamed fans, when in fact, he ordered it to be opened. The Taylor Report also said that a lack of police communication contributed to the crisis. Say we cut the officers some slack for opening Gate C. It's very possible they just panicked and thought it would save people from being injured at the turnstiles. Totally. But they followed that up with the error of not alerting anyone else in the stadium about it. If you remember from part one, most of the fans that came through Gate C funneled through the entry tunnel and into the first holding pen they saw. But the Taylor Report pointed out there was an inner door that could have been closed to redirect the rush to other areas of the stadium. Except nobody was given orders to close it. In fact, 
senior officers didn't put any follow-up plans in place after opening the gate. The Taylor report stated, quote, even after it opened, when he could see the influx on the television screen, no order was given to steer the fans to the wing pens. Mr. Duckenfield said it did not cross his mind to detail officers on the concourse to shut off the tunnel, end quote. According to the investigation, even after senior officers recognized there was a crowd crush, their response was inadequate and misguided. The Taylor report stated, quote, Mr. Duckenfield continued to treat the incident as a threat to the pitch into public order, not a rescue mission. Meaning, law enforcement still thought the issue was related to hooligans, not a crisis caused by inadequate crowd control. Even after the disaster was over, police allegedly focused on finding evidence to support the drunken fan theory instead of helping survivors or the victims' families. According to Daniel Gordon's 2016 documentary titled Hillsborough, the events of that day spoke for themselves. Grieving families who went to identify their dead relatives were allegedly grilled by officers on how much the victim had to drink that day. There were reports police then sampled victims' blood alcohol levels, even children. They also ran criminal background checks to see if any of the victims had previous charges. There's a chance they were just being thorough in their investigation, but it certainly seemed like police were searching for evidence to fit their own narrative of the disaster. Yeah. Then in 2015, another shocking revelation surfaced. The South Yorkshire police settled a civil suit claiming officers had edited the official reports from the tragedy. Essentially, they were accused of erasing language that could make the police look bad. According to the BBC, the police settled the lawsuit out of court for an undisclosed sum, and perhaps more significantly, offered an apology. South Yorkshire Acting Chief Constable Lauren Pulteney stated that, quote, serious errors and mistakes were made by its officers on the day of the disaster and during the subsequent investigations. That's a big admission. But before we get into our discussion, let's reiterate what we said earlier. The South Yorkshire police were never convicted of any crimes. Well, that being said, hearing all of their mistakes laid out in the Taylor report makes me think this conspiracy theory may have some validity. I don't know. I'm not so sure. In my view, the police were handed an unpredictable, unprecedented situation that day. It seemed like they tried to make the right decisions. They only opened Gate C to alleviate pressure at the turnstiles. And once inside, the spectators had nowhere to go. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. It's possible that poor communication was to blame, but that alone isn't a crime. Well, the truth is, there's more to the story. See, Hillsborough Stadium wasn't some brand new state-of-the-art facility. Its construction needed updating. It wasn't built to fit the crowds that came to the match that day. And for some spectators, its rusty steel pins became an unexpected death trap. Coming up, Hillsborough is put under the microscope. 
Now, back to our story. In January 1990, Lord Justice Peter Taylor published a second report on Hillsborough. In it, he focused on one thing, stadium safety. Hillsborough was an old arena, ancient, actually. It was originally built in 1899, close to a century before the disaster, which may be why it's at the heart of our third conspiracy theory. That Hillsborough management and the stadium's poor construction were at fault. In the early days, Hillsborough was a small stadium in the English countryside that only needed to hold about 5,000 spectators. But over the years, as football's popularity grew, so did the arena. By 1914, large stands had been installed, enough to hold 43,000 people. In 1960, its old, crumbling structures were demolished to make room for a more modern infrastructure. Eventually, Hillsborough had capacity for about 54,000 people, but it was an incohesive assemblage of construction. Which likely alarmed Lord Justice Taylor and his team of investigators. To sort through the mess, they looked at layouts, blueprints, and safety records. In the process, they discovered some dangerous conditions that may have contributed to the Hillsborough disaster. The most obvious one the Taylor Report pointed to, the limited number of turnstiles outside the stadium. He even titled this section of his report, The Crisis at the Turnstiles. In it, he chronicled how the entry point created such a dangerous bottleneck for spectators. The report stated, quote, as more arrived at the back, the crush at the front grew worse. Entry to the turnstiles became more difficult their efficiency was impaired and their rate reduced. Meaning just when the turnstiles needed to move faster, they ground to a halt. After the tragedy, health and safety experts examined the stadium's turnstiles to figure out why they were such an issue. In Daniel Gordon's 2016 documentary on Hillsborough, he interviewed an expert named Graham Games. Following the disaster, he was part of the engineering team sent to analyze the turnstile data. Games was able to estimate the number of fans entering the stadium before the crush. From that, he calculated it would have taken an extra 40 minutes after kickoff just to get everyone else through safely. Simply put, the stadium had installed too few turnstiles, much like Taylor's report had implied. The entry area wasn't the only dangerous design flaw. The Taylor Report also put Hillsborough's spectator pens under a microscope. The stadium didn't always have fenced pens. From the 1890s up until the late 1970s, large swaths of the stadium were general admission terraces without seats or massive fences. These wide open areas allowed spectators to sit, stand, and congregate however they wanted. For close to a century, that system worked just fine. But in the 1960s and 70s, the rise of hooliganism prompted stadiums like Hillsborough to erect anti-hooligan cages and barriers, the kind you might see at a prison. Hillsborough's first spectator pens were completed in 1977, and they were issued a safety certificate with a maximum capacity of about 10,000 people. 
but in 1981, the big cages were subdivided into smaller pens to segregate spectators and discourage unruly behavior. The problem was, after that change, stadium management didn't get the proper inspections to have their safety certificate updated. This meant they also didn't know the capacities for the new, smaller sections of the venue. They had no idea how many people could be allowed into the pens. They couldn't say, oh, this one reached a thousand people, so we'll temporarily close it. They could only eyeball how many people were in any particular pen. It was a guessing game. And according to the Taylor Report, that put many lives at risk. At past matches, police and stadium management were able to react to overcrowding by shutting down various tunnels or gates. But it was an imprecise, labor-intensive process. Apparently, on the day of the Hillsborough disaster, the police actively decided not to manage overcrowding. According to the Taylor Report, police adopted the policy of letting people find their own levels. Presumably, that meant levels of comfort. In other words, if a spectator felt too crowded in a pen, it was their responsibility to move. The end. In theory, a system like that should work. People generally don't want to remain somewhere that's overcrowded or dangerous. But the Hillsboro's pens were designed to keep people in, not let them out. Not only were they built to be difficult to climb, they had very few emergency doors, and the ones they did have were narrow and inadequate. So, once an overcrowding situation started, it was nearly impossible to reverse. That day, even after emergency doors were opened, it took several minutes for the overcrowding to subside. Spectators were literally trapped in these cages with little or no possibility to escape. The conclusion of the Taylor Report was perhaps the most damning. It placed the responsibility for future tragedies not on the police, not on the fans, but squarely on the shoulders of stadium operators. But even after the report and its sweeping statement was published, there were no immediate charges filed against arena owners or management. For close to 30 years, families of the Hillsborough victims had to campaign for justice. It wasn't until March 2014 that a new inquest was held. According to The Guardian newspaper, it was, quote, the longest case ever heard by a jury in British legal history. Two years later, on April 26, 2016, the jury came to a verdict. The Guardian reported that, quote, Defects in the construction and layout of the stadium contributed to the disaster. The jury also determined there were faults and human errors that factored into the build of the stadium. It also didn't have a valid safety certificate, which could have also helped prevent the tragedy. This opened the door for more litigation. In 2019, Graham McRell, former secretary of Sheffield Wednesday Football Club, the de facto manager of Hillsborough was fined a meager 6,500 pounds for not providing enough turnstiles. As of this recording, that's been the only criminal conviction as a result of the tragedy. 
The Guardian newspaper quoted a woman named Louise Brooks, whose brother Andrew was killed in the disaster. She said, if the fine were divided amongst the 96 victims, it came out to about 68 pounds per person. Now, to put that in perspective, the average cost of a Premier League match ticket today is 126 pounds. But after three decades of demanding justice, at least someone was being held accountable. After the verdicts, some family members cried tears of relief. Outside the courtroom, they sang Liverpool Football Club's theme song, You'll Never Walk Alone. Even before the jury verdicts, this conspiracy theory that the stadium design and management were at fault felt like a strong one to me. Between the poor construction, lack of turnstiles, and expired safety certificates, it's all very suspicious. I agree with you about the safety certificate. That's inexcusable. But I can't stop thinking about the quote from Dr. Hapgood that Lord Justice Taylor cited in the report. Basically, events like Hillsborough aren't caused by one thing. It's a whole array of mistakes, misjudgments, and mischances. In this case, there were so many that it seems impossible to say concretely who or what was at fault. That is probably the case. Though at least there was a silver lining following the endless inquiries and investigations. Real change to stadium design. That's right. The crown jewel of Lord Justice Taylor's report was a section entitled A Better Future for Football. Basically, Taylor's hopes, dreams, and recommendations for making the sport safer for spectators. In his opinion, standing room only spectator pens were a blight. So Taylor advocated a simple solution. Seats. Yes, you heard that right. An ingenious solution to the problem, seats. It sounds like a no-brainer to us now, but at the time in England, it was revolutionary. Stadiums always had general admission, standing room only areas. Despite the deadly risks, that was how many people preferred to watch football. And yet the rationale for an all-seat stadium made sense. With an exact number of places to sit, Stadium management would know precisely how many spectators were in a particular section. More control would equal more safety. Like most revolutionary changes, there was, of course, opposition. The public and even parliament members were concerned about the cost. We don't know the exact figures, but according to The Guardian, the government paid teams £31 million per year for these safety upgrades. Besides the immediate cost of football stadiums, many fans who hadn't been affected by Hillsborough didn't want to lose their cheap seats. Even Lord Justice Taylor was concerned that working-class fans might be priced out of upgraded stadiums. At the time, he recommended keeping ticket prices for the cheapest seats around six pounds. Despite the opposition, the improvements were adopted across the country. Stadiums were overhauled, Fences were eliminated. Many antiquated turnstiles were upgraded or expanded. And it seems to have worked. Since the disaster, there have been no deaths due to safety conditions, at least in the UK. 
That wasn't the only change. More civilized games ushered in a renaissance of English football. It went from being a national embarrassment to being one of the most sought-after sports leagues in the world. The broadcast rights alone skyrocketed. They went from about $10 million per year in the 1980s to $5 billion in recent years. Well, that's more than a 300% increase. It wasn't only an economic change. In the 1980s, international players rarely wanted to compete in the UK. Today, the English Premier League is one of the most prestigious places to play. But money and prestige will never bring back the victims of Hillsborough. Thankfully, their memory still lives on today. For decades since the tragedy, the uniforms of Liverpool's players have been emblazoned with a number 96 to honor each of the victims. In 2021, they even adjusted it to read 97 after another victim named Andrew Devine passed away from the injuries he sustained during the disaster. Today, when fans sing their anthem, many of them think about those lives lost that April afternoon. The lyrics say it all. May they never walk alone. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. For more information on the Hillsborough disaster, amongst the many sources we used, we found ESPN and the BBC's documentary, Hillsborough by Daniel Gordon, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We're here on Mondays and Wednesdays with all new episodes. Until next time, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Eric Cunningham, edited by Adam De Silva and Lori Marinelli, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Sapphire Williams, produced by Josh Kern, with sound design by Russell Nash. Our hosts are Molly Brandenburg and me, Carter Roy. Carter Roy.